Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Sorcerer's Orphan, a podcast created to dissect and explore the inner workings and inspired accidents that have helped the Flaming Lips write, create, and record some of our most iconic music and songs. I'm Stephen Droz, and I will be your host for this special one-hour and 15-minute episode of Discussions and Rememberings. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Hello, and welcome to episode number nine. We usually focus on a particular song, but for this installment of the podcast, we're going to go off the usual grid and examine the entire album, The Terror. In this episode, we will talk about how the album was the byproduct of a strange song that started out as just a fun distraction from our long, stressful winter session. We will talk with our friend Sean about a vintage plastic synthesizer, and we will talk with Dave Fridman about how this strange recording seemed to be a natural evolution away from our pop song structures. All that coming right up. Here we go. Let's start with the facts. The Terror was written, recorded, and mixed February through April 2012. Then it was finalized and mastered in June of 2012. But it's not released until a year later, April 1st of 2013. It is late in January of 2012, and I'm once again struggling with opiate addiction. I'm dreading having to spend a couple of weeks at Tarbox Road Studios in the dead of winter. But like always, the session for finishing up the record, Flaming Lips and Hetty Flynn's, was precious and important time spent with Dave Fridman. So there we were. Wayne and Dave would be doing the final mixes and mastering in the main studio, and I would sit in the newly constructed Studio B and mess around with Dave's cool synthesizers. He had an ARP 2600 and a Yamaha CS60. I was also having fun with some new keyboard apps on my iPad, the Korg IMS-20 and the Synth, which allows you to make your own samples by simply singing into your iPad. I don't have a song composition in mind, but I'm recording little bits of these new sounds as I discover them. The first one I record is this. It's an acoustic guitar into my iPad using the Moog Filtertron app, and I attach, I don't know why, a C-sharp drone note to it. So it's a loop that played probably a couple minutes, but just started with a single arpeggio. So yeah, that would loop and go on for a couple of minutes. I'm having fun just passing the time, really. And then I put down this sound. This is my voice tweaked with different delays and remodulator stuff. It's not a loop. I'm just plunking around. 
The next sound, third if you're keeping track, is a synth-based sound on the Korg IMS-20 app on the iPad. Again, I have no song, no particular composition in mind, but it's growing into something interesting. Do you recognize this song yet? I record a drum kit track but quickly decide that I don't like it. And the next thing is me singing into a Shure KSM44 microphone. Probably through the Universal Audio EMT140 plate reverb plugin. As you can hear, it quickly turns into this song. You are alone. But we don't know that yet. Next, I record this. It's the old ARP2600 that hadn't seen much use at Dave's studio, even though it was set up in the upstairs corner. It plays fine, but I add this restart glitchy sound to the loop. This is all happening in a couple of hours on January 25th and a couple hours on the 26th. I remember Wayne popping in and saying, Hey Stephen, what is that? And my reply is probably that I'm just messing around with some new apps on my iPad, but I can tell that Wayne really likes it, and he quickly suggests that I remove the acoustic guitar track and let's see what that sounds like. I do, and I feel like it makes a more mysterious and bleak vibe, which is always welcome. We collectively feel good about this strange new track, and I leave it be for the moment, not really sure what to do next. The following day, January 27, Wayne adds this. An atonal electronic synthesizer seagull sound. The sound you're hearing is being generated by a plastic, portable, almost toy-like monophonic synthesizer called the Wasp, made in 1978 by Electronic Dream Plant and was only manufactured for five or six years. It is one of the coveted vintage synths that gearheads and curious musicians seek out. It's great for lots of reasons. It's small, it's plastic and lightweight, it has a built-in speaker, it looks like an educational student keyboard. Yay! But its greatest feature is its unpredictable sounds and textures that to a non-musician's ear can sound like perhaps something has gone wrong in the electronics. But to us, a strange and uncanny mixture of overtones and random glitches provides endless creative inspiration. And as you can hear, is immediately evocative. An 
In October of the year 2011, we were making a double album called Hetty Friends, with guest artists featured on every track. Sean and Charlotte and Yoko Ono are on this track called Brain of Heaven. We went to Sean and Yoko's beautiful house in upstate New York, where on the second floor is Sean's insane home recording studio. Sean has an extravagant collection of old instruments and recording equipment, and one of the sounds that he suggested that we use on this track was the Wasp synthesizer. Well, you know, I just, I, I started collecting synths pretty early on when I was in Chibomato because uh well i don't know i was always into into analog synths and they were actually everywhere this is sean lennon we spoke with him over the phone while he was at that very studio you see at the end of this recording session sean could tell wayne and i were enamored with this synthesizer that was brand new to us the synthesizer being the wasp and well let's let him tell the story you know, you guys were trying to make some spacey sounds, and I was like, "Dude, this is this is the one." I mean, it's sort of, it's like Star Trek in a box. Like it's instant, you know, outer space sounds. And um, you know, I was just so grateful that you guys had come to play at my spot with me and Charlotte. That I just was like, "I gotta give it to them, man!" Like, and I knew you guys were gonna use it and make something cool out of it, and you did. So, you know. There was an air of excitement about this new song, and even though we were still wrapping up an insane, huge, and complicated double album, Hetty Flynn's, I can tell everyone is suddenly motivated to make some new music. Now, it was one night, Wayne, Cliff, and I, I think went to BJ's, uh, the, the uh, bar in Fredonia. Maybe it's just like a nightcap at the end of the night. Here's Derek Brown remembering how everyone felt in the aftermath of this new trip. And I remember very distinctly driving back, sitting in the back seat, Wayne driving Cliff in the front passenger and just talking about how it was going, how the sessions were going and stuff. And and um, I remember Wayne saying, and that thing Steven was doing, that's like, that's like next level. That's something, that's something different. That's a whole other trip. And um, kind of haunting just in it may, you know, it affected all of us that heard it because um, it was so raw and so different. I, I think maybe that was kind of the, you know, the first step towards the terror because then it was like, wow, that's some, that's some bleak shit right there, you know, and <laughs> maybe we could do more stuff like that. We're beginning to work on a new track that will end up being the song You Lust. We had done some extended recordings in the past with all of us playing together in the big studio B, which isn't that common for us, playing all together, as we mostly just overdub one thing at a time. But the synths were already set up and plugged in, and we, Derek, Cliff, Wayne, and me, did a formless 10-minute jam that Wayne was recording on his iPhone just for reference. It was this jam. Somehow we were all just playing music together, and I was on a synth, and... 
Wayne was playing the, I want to say it was Wayne playing the lead line uh, on a wasp synth. And then um, Wayne had just recorded it on his phone and then we couldn't recreate it or whatever. And, and Dave Fridman ended up just using the video audio to start building a track. Here's Wayne's actual iPhone recording isolated. You can hear Derek on the ARP 2600. And here is me playing the Yamaha CS60. I'm sprinkling a D major seventh chord over a C sharp bass note. But if you're trying to play along at home, this recording is not in standard A440 tuning. I apologize. And here is Wayne fumbling around on the wasp, looking for something. And then, he finds the riff. This may seem like a strange way to arrive at a song, but for us, really, this happens all the time. Anything that spikes your dopamine and that sudden sense of discovery is the way to go. It's late February 2012, and I'm back in Oklahoma City. I'm in better health having quit the opiates. And Wayne and I are energized by these two new songs, You Are Alone and You Lust, that have seemingly pointed us in a new direction. We start to work in the then brand new Pink Floor Studio. For Wayne and I, as songwriters, there are many ways to write songs, but mostly for us, we've discovered over time that it comes down to three different methods. Number one would be the most obvious way. It's kind of like a folk singer has a guitar or a piano, and there are singing and playing, and lyrics and melody and chords are all stream of consciousness happening at the same time. Number two would be a person writing chords and melody, but not necessarily thinking of words or a story at the same time, although there might be enough of an emotional component in the chords and melody to help influence the lyrics that are to be written. Number three, which is probably the most exciting, is when we stumble upon a texture or a sound that's already so evocative, it sets you on a creative path that's already filled with mood and attitude and essentially makes the process fun and easy. What you're hearing here is one of the first things we record. This is, again, the Wasp. You see, Wayne and I had made a sort of mission agenda, a self-imposed restriction that we would not use any acoustic guitars and we would build all of the rhythm beds using only the Wasp. This may sound like a limitation, but really, to us, it was a kind of freedom. Wayne and I often are working on several albums at the same time. But for what would end up being the terror, we were very decisive about what we were doing. We wanted nine songs, and we wanted the nine songs to be of a piece and all have varieties of the same mood and state of mind. Earlier, I had mentioned the three ways of our songwriting. This first song, 
which will end up being turning violent, is all created from the third method. Meaning that discovering the sound made by the wasp that was given to us by Sean Lennon, for us, dictated such a strong mood and feeling, it's almost as if the song wrote itself. The starting point of this sound on the song Turning Violent would happen over February 28th and 29th and further crystallize our vision of what this new music is saying. I believe that there's something deep in Wayne's psyche that is both utopian 60s hippie and Manson family drug damage chaos hippie, both going at the same time. And this may give you some insight into the why and how we arrived at these lyrics. This pulsing, menacing vibe set against this sad, longing melody with these lyrics. Here's what Wayne had to say about it. We really are never a group that is trying to tell anyone um, how to live. I think I think we're always concerned uh, just about like the plight of the individual. So like I think whereas Timothy Leary, maybe he's trying to suggest a way of of being in in his slogan, the tune in, turn on drop out I think I think that's what it is um, us singing turn on and on and on turn on and at the end singing turn off I think this is really just me trying to tap into this reptilian you know like my reptilian freak brain and I, I think the, the bleakness implied by the terror is that it's bleak because there's no way out and there's no or there's no good way out and violence is always an option. It's not a good option, but violence is always an option. Um, but it's not a violence that we're, we are meaning towards the world or towards anybody. I think it's this violence against, you know, maybe our former selves and our former way of being, our former way of thinking. And you want to be able to just rip into yourself, deep into yourself, and say things that you've never said before. There is, there is something comforting about melodies and chord changes and the pace of a song and all these sorts of things. To whereas with the terror, it is it, really meant to just sort of like, just shred you wide open. After the break, we will continue on with this examination of these first six compositions, and we'll talk with Dave Fridman and get his take on this eerie album. We'll be right back. Oh my God, I can't believe it. 
It's Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots 20th Anniversary Deluxe Box Set. All my dreams are coming true again. It's got rare unreleased tracks like this one. But if I go mad. And crazy cover versions of some of my favorite songs like this. demos from the vault like this do you realize and this and insane live recordings like this Flaming Lips, Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots 20th Anniversary Deluxe Box Set. Available on Warner Brothers Records. Get it now. I don't think it really registers in this record either as a positive or negative saying it's, oh, it's out of time or it's not here or it's in a different key. Is you know, the bass notes of that thing is, are clashing. This is Dave Fridman our longtime co-producer and collaborator. He's talking to us from his studio in Western New York. What he's referring to is the misconception that a producer would demand that every performance be in time and in tune and at least somewhat musical. But with Dave, this is never a hard rule or an absolute truism. And so for the Terror album, we were collectively and purposefully making music that could be unsettling. And so, more than ever before, we were drawn to sounds that were often out of tune and out of time, and sometimes, as is the case in this bass part on the song The Terror, very out of tune and very out of time. Here's Dave again. Like, we can sit down and listen to a Beatles song or a Led Zeppelin song and be like, man, that guy's, he's sharp, he's flat, he's out of time, that, that, that's, they skipped that beat, what the hell? And nobody cares i don't think that's i don't i don't think that registers for most people or even musicians necessarily most of the time it's it's you either are attracted or repelled by it which oh i i, I think is great news for that record to be like it's definitive in what it is so we are a complete team everyone is absolutely on board and this gang mentality really can't get you past feeling self-indulgent or insecure about how fucked up this stuff is sounding. Well, I, I not only agree, I, I remember these as being specific discussions while, while working on it. You know, while we were working on Embryonic and getting into this territory. He's referring to our 2009 double album called Embryonic. We got, we got to a point where it was like, okay, good, we're finally here. And let's let's finalize all this stuff and say it's there. And now, as we go through the terror, you're okay. We start from that point and continue on. But there was that natural ebb and flow that you know your band has gone through all this time of going you know noisy melodic, noisy melodic, and you you're always taking these long uh, routes up and down between the two. And it was clear when we were, you know, as we were approaching the end of that project, it was like, oh, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta call this because 
we know we're, this the melodic thing is coming back. We can feel it, and we just had to stop. To us at that time, the terror was a pop masterpiece, and it's and compared to these other things we've been working on. So it was to to me, it didn't feel like a struggle at all. Um, like I thought, embryonic that was a struggle that we had a hard time getting to where we got um, because people were coming from a lot of different directions a lot going on in everybody's lives and just all this crazy stuff happening but once we got there it felt and and again dude the experience of having done the movie having done 24 hour song having done the uh, all, the six hour song you just go okay well i think i think i feel comfortable here you know this this is this is uh this is warm water that i'm i'm comfortable in While we're on the subject, let's examine the multi-track of the song, The Terror. This drum machine pattern is from a Yamaha E70 organ that I found on eBay back in 2011. But most of this organ, the unmodified part, is the exact model organ that we had in my house when I was growing up. This drum pattern is simply a button you press, I think it's called Ballad, in the drum choices. This would be a sound that Wayne stumbled upon while trying to figure out all the options on this machine. We laid down this beat probably for five minutes. It's the first sound we recorded that would end up, over the next four or five hours, becoming a whole new song, The Terror. And here the Wasp makes an early appearance as the second instrument before we even have any chords put down to the song. And it's a very menacing bass line. Next is a basic chord pattern using the silo synth creepy sampled voice choir. It's an F sharp minor to E, F sharp minor to B minor, and I'm just trying to get something going. Often Wayne and I will try singing anything, really just anything, knowing that the other person is listening and hoping it stirs up a feeling, or hints at an emotion, or begins to tell a story. We do my first attempt at a vocal melody. Then I try another. Then, Wayne tries something. Forget who you are, Wayne tries something again. Forget that you are. Then I try again. Then I decide to do a higher register and I stumble upon the melody of the song.
And then the electric bass machine robot comes in. Here's Wayne talking about the release of the terror in April of 2013. Yeah, I was in um, was in Europe doing a series of uh, these long days of interviews. This is right after, or just right before the the record, the terror is, is getting ready to come out. And back then. Um, you know, you would sit in a hotel room all day and journalists would come to you. So, like, you know, every every hour someone would come in and, you know, at the end of it you'd have ten minutes to get ready for the next one. And, you know, probably do eight or nine of these a day. And so I'd, I'd be in, like, Berlin one day and then uh, Paris the next day and Milan the next day and London or whatever. So, you know, all week long doing uh, days like that. And, you know, journalists... Um, the ones I, I'm talking to anyway, you know, they're, they're great. And, but they have a lot of, back then anyway, you know, they would have a lot of music that they'd have to listen to. And, um, and so, you know, I, you always get the feeling they know a little bit about you and they know a little bit about the music, this new music that you're putting out. But a lot of it's pretty, pretty vague and everybody kind of plays along. And I, I, would, I always, I, I don't mind any of that. I, the people are always very nice to me and, you know, I try to tell them, you know, it's interesting uh, of a story that they that they can use for their piece. But anyway, um, this one day is later in the afternoon on this one day, and this uh, this nice Italian uh, journalist came into the room, and I could sort of tell um, she had a little bit of an agenda, which was fine with me. I, I was glad that you know that someone was going to be firm about their opinion. And she said, um, I know what the terror is about. And I, I was like, oh, well, well good. I, I mean, I, sincerely, I, w- I, was, I was glad. I was like, oh, okay. She says, it's about being in a relationship with someone that you don't want to be in a relationship with and you don't know how you're going to get out of it. And I was, <laughs> I was shocked because... Um, you know, no one had ever said it like that. And she said, well, I, I know it's that because that I just got out of a relationship and that's exactly what this record is exactly that. And, um, you know, she, she would look at lyrics and say, you know, you don't control the controls and the terrors in your head. And, and you know, we... we I, we tried to do the interview, but I, I mostly asked her questions of, of you know, how did, how did she deal with it? And, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to agree with her. I think she knew that I did agree with her. I, I hope I made that clear, but I didn't want to agree with her because, you know, I don't, I don't want really any of our music to be about a certain thing. You know, it's, it's just music, and if you listen to it and you're in that state of mind, um, or if you have similar experiences and feelings about it, the, the music will, you'll hear that in what we're doing. And we don't really, it, 
You know, music really is never about any specific thing. It, it's a, it, it's 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 about us. But in within that is the things that are happening to us that we don't really know are going into the music. And it was um. It was it was. Luckily, it was long enough after all the stuff happened that I was singing about that I could I could finally see and and um, yeah she she was right. This is Georgia Barnes, also known as the UK recording artist, Georgia. In 2018, she recorded this version of our song, Try to Explain. Our version of Try to Explain was recorded March 2nd, 2012. On this day, I'm driving to Wayne's Pink Floor Studios. This time, this was about a 20 to 25 minute drive. Like I said, I'm driving to Wayne's studio, knowing that we were going to write and record a new song, a song that neither Wayne nor I have any idea of what it will be. So I'm driving and I start humming a melody. I have my iPhone, but I can't reach it. I'm hearing a melody, I'm hearing chords. And the way I do this is, I picture a keyboard in my mind's eye, and like dots on the keys, I can press each one to confirm the melody. Then, with the notes of the melody still being prominent in my mind, I can imagine chords that could go underneath this melody. For the chords, I don't need to visualize a keyboard. I can't really explain why, but Say I want to hear an F-sharp major chord behind that melody. Well, those can just congeal in my mind. Now remember, I'm driving, I can't reach my phone. So I get to Wayne's driveway, and sitting in the car, I record the melody quickly into my iPhone. Unfortunately, I recorded it into an app that I no longer have access to. But I get into the studio, without much conversation or anything that will disrupt my occupied thoughts, I quickly record this. This keyboard, again, is the Yamaha E70, which is already plugged directly into the board and ready to go. The rhythm is being created by some filter in the modified section. And remember, this is a home-style keyboard, but it's been modified by some weirdos, and I bought it on eBay. It is the exact sound you hear in the final version. And the scratch vocal here is also in the final version. It's buried under Wayne's lyrics, but it's there. It's also worth mentioning that these sessions were at Pink Floor Studios. 
but it was only Wayne and I, which is rare. There is usually an engineer helping, and for a good reason. I'm good with my home studio, but Pink Floor's Pro Tools is pretty complex, so I don't really know what I'm doing, and Wayne knows even less. It's primitive, but amateur is probably a better word. And here's Wayne talking a little bit about how he came up with the lyrics. Yeah, this would have been a couple of weeks, maybe after we've done this initial recording of it, where we've settled on, you know, this is going to be the melody. We like what's going on here. And I'm, I'm just putting words to Stephen's song. I mean, this is such a complete musical thought. And some of his scratch vocal would have words in it. I mean, there wouldn't be sentences, but there would be hints of emotional words. And that makes it, that makes it kind of like you have to follow those and fill in what you think the story could be, you know, because you want that. You want these sort of these guides along the way. Th- these don't sound like words that I would have written you know, sitting in the studio with Stephen or anybody, really. These, these sound like words that I would just have written sitting there by myself. And I think by the time I wrote these words, I knew this melody. I knew It's a long uh, arc of a melody. It's a, it's a beautiful, crushing uh, melody. I knew it very well. I would probably listen to this, you know, this, this early sketched version of it that we're doing. Probably listen to that, you know, 500 times. So I knew it without thinking about it, without having to have any music playing. I knew where all the, the arc of all of it would go. And so I am just doing it as words to music. I'm not really thinking of it as telling even a story at some point. And I think it, that's probably why it tells such an intricate story, is because I'm, I'm not aware that I'm trying to tell a story. There's a church four or five blocks away from my house that I drive by often enough, and they have a like a lot of church signs, you know, they have a, an ever-changing slogan up there. And I remember being inspired by the one I saw in this time, you know, searching for lyrics, searching for something to put to this story of Stevens. The thing at the church said something like, you know, is it wise not to believe in Jesus or something like that. But I like this, uh, this beginning where it would say, is it wise? And so at the very beginning of the lyrics, is it wise? Loving someone, they tell lies, uh, make you think something. You know, I've always wondered how hypnotists, you know, being hypnotized, I've always, I've always wondered, like, how does that work? You know, how do you get people to say things and how do you get people to, to confess things or whatever that they don't really want to reveal? And so this type of songwriting sort of always works for me that way. It's I, I think I'm just putting some words to Stephen's song. And really, when I would step back after we had done it, after we'd sort of done the song or whatever, I'd step back and realize, oh my gosh, you know, I've, I've really kind of confessed these deep, deep things that I would never want to say. I wouldn't want to even have it out in the world but through this song you know I, I felt it sort of removed from the whole thing and I felt like it's not really even me it's just uh, you know I'm just putting words to this thing and so the confessing part of the lyric is I think there's probably a, an idea that when I'm saying uh, try to explain why you've changed that that would be me singing to the 
person in this relationship that, that is leaving. But that's not true. It really is. I'm singing it from the perspective of the person that I'm leaving. And that makes it even more excruciating and more painful and more just embarrassing and more revealing and more, you know, there's a there's part of you says, I don't want to say it. I should take it back or whatever. But that's that goes against the code, you know, the code of this is this is what we this is how we make music. It's 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 honest and it's real and it's not always in our control what we're going to say for better or for worse. What you're hearing here is a piece of music that I recorded in early 2011. I sent it to Wayne, and he said he really liked it, but maybe the 3-4 time is too weird for him. This track ends up being the song, Be Free. During our session at Pink Floor, we revisit this idea. We just get started, and it's going well, but we are temporarily called away to be part of a Woody Guthrie tribute concert in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We do his song, Vigilante Man. Have you seen that vigilante man? Instead of doing the normal thing, which would be to use acoustic guitars, we used apps on our iPads, which is very similar to the way we recorded the music for The Terror. This was a fun but challenging performance and a welcome break. This is all happening on March 10th, and on the very next day, March 11th, we do this. March 18th, Wayne adds these lyrics. This song, Be Free, it was moving along pretty good. Stephen had done a, a vocal, but it wasn't lyrics, you know, it's emotive, uh, melodic stuff. And there would be an occasional thing that sounded like a word or whatever in there. But this is a way uh, that we write songs uh, quite often. And when this is, is happening, I'm singing lyrics to a melody that we've already agreed is working, and I'm, I'm maybe it's slightly looser than the melody, or maybe it's slightly different. But it's we pretty much know the rhythms and the melodies that are going to happen. And in this building of this 
thing, you know, as it's building along, it's as though we already know what we're talking about. And, and part of us thinks that the listener already knows what we're talking about. And you start getting into a little bit of a shorthand, like you do when you're talking with people that you've been talking to all a lot. And you don't, you know, you just start, everybody already knows what you're about to say. So the very beginning of this lyric, I said it and never thought about, did it really have any meaning when it says, did God make pain so that we could know the high that nothing is? I meant to say the high that feeling nothing is, meaning the feeling of nothing within our bodies, feeling no pain. Um, We get so used to it that we don't remember what an amazing feeling it is. And it's only once we're in pain that do we realize, oh my gosh, I, I have a body and it's in pain. But I so much felt like the universe and everybody, everybody that heard this, any ear that heard this song would already know what I'm talking about, that the lyric just ends up being, did God make pain so we would know the high that nothing is? Which, when I hear it now, I, I'm, I'm confused by it. So when I sing it live or when we sing it, you know, in, in another uh, uh, context, I try to remember to fill in the lyric where feeling nothing is really the high. It's that nothing, saying just nothing kind of leaves you well, like, I'm not sure what you're talking about there. When songs are feeling their best, I mean, feeling their best to, to you, the songwriter that's making it, I think it feels like it's you that is in the song and it's you that the song is about and it's already you that understands the song. And all that gives you a confidence that, of course, this is this is an important thing to say and this is, you know, this is why we make songs because it's trying to it's trying to make a moment of your life where you realize something or suddenly you you've you've come to a different sensation about what life means to you that you try to put it into a song so it's kind of frozen forever in this state. Um, I think the dilemma of just endless conversation and endless thinking and always talking about stuff is, you know, little by little, our rational minds want to take over and almost anything doesn't matter how how fun or how ridiculous or, or really how horrible, how tragic it is. The human mind, in time, over a lot of discourse and going back and forth, will find a way to make it acceptable. It doesn't necessarily mean it's trivial, but it sort of takes away all the all the the horrible edges that makes it unthinkable. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to think about it. You wouldn't be able to go on. Sometimes I think songs will freeze the way that you think about something that's forever there. So it doesn't become just something trivial and something that everybody... Oh, that everybody knows, oh, I understand that. Sometimes it's great that a song can have a lot of meaning and a lot of emotion in it, yet when we analyze it, we don't always quite know exactly what it means. I think songs, if we're lucky, you know, they can get at something that's so deep inside of you that we, we don't even know where to begin to analyze it. But we know it's there, we know we feel it, and as long as the song is playing, we kind of feel like we, we understand it. But don't always know if we if we need to understand it to think we understand it maybe is 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 what the song wants us to think after the break we'll talk about going back up to dave fredman's studio to finish the terror 
and what sometimes happens when you think you've finished a record, but the songs keep coming. We'll be right back. Oh my God, it's the Flaming Lips American Head LP. Music and songs that are a real bummer. Like this. Chronicling the burnout of our brothers and sisters. Like this. The tale of a near-death experience of a teenager. Oh, it's the wonderful Casey Musgraves on acid with lightning bugs. Featuring drug delusion bliss like this. It's the Fleming Lips American Head. Available on Warner Brothers Records. Get it now. March 14th, and we're back up at Tarbox Road Studios with Dave Fridman. We have a collection of unfinished but intriguing songs, and we set to work on these first seven tracks, hoping to get final mixes on the songs You Are Alone, Try to Explain, Be Free, The Terror, Turning Violent, Look the Sun is Rising, and You Lust. So lots of mixing and lots of listening. For some reason, Wayne and I had predetermined that the terror would be precisely nine songs long. And like I said earlier, we were mixing seven songs, so we still needed two more tracks. Butterfly, How Long It Takes to Die, was recorded and released in 2011, but was a song that we wanted to keep working on. It was started on August 13th of 2011, and it was just Wayne on bass and me on the drums, jamming in Studio B. At this time, I was curious about recording drums like this. These are the drums from the song Evil Minds that was released in 2011. It's pretty lo-fi, but enjoyable. This is me playing an old Rogers kit, and I'm playing it with my hands, meaning I'm not using drumsticks. So I'm playing very, very lightly on the snare drum and lightly on the kick drum. I have my laptop sitting on the kick drum and everything is recorded straight into the computer using only the laptop's microphone. I'm not monitoring as I go, but I would stop and listen and adjust as I went. So anyway, the drums for Butterfly, How Long It Takes to Die, are again me playing using my hands on the snare but with the snares turned off, one foot playing the hi-hat and the other foot playing the kick drum very lightly. This time, though, it's not recorded on my laptop, but it's recorded with Dave and his gear. So, when Wayne and I were jamming initially together, I was hearing the timing and the counting to myself as this. One, two, one, two, three, four, 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 one, two, three,
four, one, two, three, four. And though we're playing at the same time, Wayne perceives the timing as this. One, two, one, two, three, four, one, two, one, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, one, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, one, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, one, three, four. Dave Fridman perceived the timing of the song the way I originally did, and this resulted in a short meltdown and rethinking of the feel of the song. So, to forever free our minds of this confusion, I added into the final mix of the song this one. 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 This is one of those collaborative quagmires where even though the music is exactly the same, each person is hearing it on a different downbeat. And it wasn't until we decided to do an edit that we discovered this difference. And I still now to this day get occasionally disoriented when I hear the song. This is a demo for what would end up being the song Always There in Our Hearts. It was temporarily titled Revolution Breezes, and for me at the time, the year 2009, it sounded like something the Jefferson Airplane might have done. We are nearing the end of the song cycle for the terror, so we're still wanting one more song, but we also want a song that will sum up this whole story. A song that is the accumulation of everything that has come before. So again, it's just me recording by myself in Studio B. I picked from the library of unique sounds that we had been using for all the previous songs on the terror. I chose these as my sound palette. Here's the ring modulator, scrunk 12-string guitar that we used on Look the Sun is Rising and Butterfly. Here's the single note white noise blast. Also used on Look the Sun is Rising. And here's the repeater oscillating synth bass from the Wasp that we used on the song Turning Violent. And the funny drums play with my hands like I did on the song Butterfly. I had the line always there in our hearts and felt like Wayne would know what to do with the rest of the lyrics. We've done this before. (laughs) This is the perfect kind of confessionalistic song. It allows you to be comic book fantasy dramatic while filling it in with mundane truths.
So we, for the moment, are relieved that we perhaps have finished this album. But wait, what do you do when you still have more music happening? Two unfinished pieces of music haunted us. We had spent all the time we had scheduled with Dave Fridman at his great studio, but we still felt like these two musical interludes belonged on the terror. Oh, this is the... The great, the great pain of being the decision maker. And here's what Wayne had to say about the anxiety of these two new pieces of music arriving just as we're finishing. So we're not literally about to walk out the door, but the, from what we could tell, most of the, the session that is going to end up being the record, The Terror, we, we've wrapped it up. We, we feel satisfied with it, and it's all, you know, for better or for worse, it's... it's it was the nine tracks. It was the nine tracks that we set out to do, and we didn't feel like we wanted to keep mucking around and, and have our... We didn't want to be influenced too much by anything else. We, we were satisfied and, and thought, oh, you know, we're done. But wait, and, um, you know, even when you're done making, you know, a record, there's still a lot of time, a lot of stuff that has to be worked on. And in this time, I mean, this, it's not an hour, you know, it can, it can go on for a couple of days, even after you, you know, say you, you, you're, it's all complete. So it's probably the evening of when we first think we're finished that evening, Stephen plays me this, it's a little piece of music that at the time is called, the title that he put on it, in spite of billions of people, we still die wondering if we're alone okay so that title just by itself is like bringing an explosion into a room and saying you you have what you know and then the piece of music is is just um you know it it just it stuns you how bleak and beautiful it is it really is the way that the terror the cycle the song cycle of stuff it, it's another version of all that, only, uh, I hate to say it now, but only more more clear and more bleak and more beautiful, you know, more saturated with that feeling. And we don't really know what to do because it's, it's so impressive. Everybody there, um, you know, it kind of stops us all and we all just go, well... You know, what What do we do? Because we don't really do pieces of music like this that often. A lot of times, Stephen and I know we're working on a song. I mean, I think for the most part, Stephen and I are, we like doing songs, we like to sing, we like to do words and stuff like that. We do a lot of instrumentals, but I think we're mostly doing songs that have a story and have a, you know, a narrative and whatever, you know. But occasionally... These things like this billions of people attract, it's just so complete and just so expressive and so perfect. You don't know if you should do anything to it. 
And that's a dilemma too, because to not do something with it is like, well, should we explore other possibilities? Should we turn this into a bigger song? Should we give it a narrative? And should we try to sing on top of it? And at the time, we didn't have any time and we didn't want to go we didn't want to keep going. We didn't want to go further and further into the, the, the lyrics and all that. And I think that helped us. I, and I say that now because I, I, I don't think we could have made it a better piece of music. We, we couldn't have made it a, something more enjoyable than what it ends up being. And, and so these little snippets and this, the first one they brought in is the, is, is the, is the billions of people one. And then the second one... You know, it, it's bad enough that there's one that we have to say, okay, what, what are we going to do with this? We thought we were finished. Now, let, what are we going to do with this? And then the second one is a kind of a cross between uh, the experimental, I think they're a German group called Popolva, and the Russian composer <laughs> um, Dmitry Shostakovich. And again, this this piece of music is in that very same mood, that very same vibe. That very you know you you hear it and you you feel the temperature of the sky and everything. It, it's so vivid, which again it was even made it worse because now we have two pieces of music that not only are we going to just throw them on there the way that they are, but we're not even going to try to develop them and we're not going to look further into it. And I think for the longest time, you know, you just think, is that just a missed opportunity or did we just not try hard enough or why is that? So these two pieces of music, they make brief, brief segments that really just end up going in between songs on the the way that the terror, the song cycle went. It would just be in between songs. But I have to say, you know, the, the way that they just appear out of the fog and then go back in. We didn't try to put them in a, even in a sequence where they were in the same key or tempo or anything with the song that preceded it or the song that it was going to um, fade into. I mean, they just sort of come in and out. There's no, there's no musical rhyme or reason to it, you know, which was in keeping with the way that the terror, the way a lot of the songs were just put on there because... There was, you know, there's no no musical logic to it. We liked it, and there there you go, you know. So I think it's just now that there's some satisfaction in that we didn't keep keep messing with it. We didn't keep trying to make it into something better. We didn't keep trying to make it into a song that has more meaning. So I think these brief snippets, though they seem like afterthoughts, they really are. I feel like if the terror, the way that we had worked on the terror, if it hadn't happened the way it did, we wouldn't have got these great, 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 perfect little moments. And that's, these are hard decisions to make because we all know we could have 
somehow within the next couple of months, you know, said, well, we can come back and we can keep working on this. But that was our one of the, the dilemmas that we have a lot of times is we can just keep working on stuff and what it started out being after months and sometimes years of working on stuff, you've just completely gone over what you initially did and you're really just working on something new. And we didn't want that to happen because it's one of our, it's one of our, I don't know, bad qualities about this kind of freedom and intensity and always feeling like the thing that you just did is informing the thing that you're just about to do. And it's not always for the better of of the music. It feels good, but I don't think it, it always serves the music better. So these two these two end up, I think, making the terror really this 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 strange look at this the word bleak, I think, you know, as time goes by, I think that is such a beautiful word, especially for Stephen and I. When we say bleak, we're like, bring it on. And it is such a such a beautiful, beautiful feeling. I don't know if it's good in, in real life, but it definitely is good as a listening experience. mastered the terror, it was made to play as one long continuous track. Meaning, if you started the first track, say in iTunes or Spotify, it wouldn't stop after that song was over. It would just play the entire album without any interruption. So there ends up being two versions of the terror out there. The version that has the songs ordered individually, and the version that is continuous. And these two pieces of music can only be heard on the all-connected one. So, we've come to the end of our podcast. I've really, really enjoyed revisiting all the sessions and remembering all the cool things that happened in the making of this album, which, by the way, is one of my all-time favorite albums that we've ever done. I'd like to thank our amazing engineer, Miles Adams, and our generous guests, Dave Fridman, Derek Brown, and Sean Lennon. And lastly, to thank you, you, the listener, for always believing in us and always encouraging us to go further and keep exploring new worlds of sound. I'll leave you with this edit of the song You Lust. And until next time, peace and punk rock forever.